Thanks to this season's presenting sponsor, Kohler. They design innovative sinks and faucets for people who do their best work in the kitchen. Before we get started, we'd like to make a quick correction. The original version of this episode incorrectly talked about the relationship between Kerry Group and Kerry Gold Butter. Anyway, here's an updated version of the story. Thanks for listening. Most of us have gotten lost in the supermarket. Maybe as a kid. Maybe even as an adult. There are some folks for whom getting lost in a supermarket is an adventure. Like John Ringer, a journalist by trade, but an amateur supermarket enthusiast in his off time. Uh, I've done the thing that I always do, which is I park the cart way at the top of the aisle. And I'm going to walk up and down, just like looking. This looks fun. This is a flatbread keto bread mix. And now you can get protein in instant coffees. This is a, a latte, an instant latte with 15 grams of protein. This one only has five grams of protein, but it comes with collagen creamer. <laughs> collagen in your latte in the morning, which I guess is good for your uh, hair or something? I don't know. But this entire shelf is like snackable cookies, like mini cookies. I don't know where this trend came from, but all of a sudden there's just mini cookies everywhere. You can pause here and note that there's uh, granola with kale, which I do. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know about that. Um, there are several different types of chickpea-based snacks. It looks looks pretty good. This one's Himalayan pink salt, uh, everything bagel, rock and ranch, honey roasted, a Korean barbecue, Korean barbecue, huh? Korean barbecue. You see, it's everywhere. John, this isn't something you just think about in the moment. This is literally bedtime reading for you, and that's how you found today's story. Back in 2010, I read an article in an Indian business magazine about a new McDonald's burger that was launching there, and it was called the McSpicy Paneer. Paneer is this very mild-tasting cheese that sort of has the consistency of firm tofu, and the idea was to coat it and fry it like a McChicken. But the article went on for pages and pages and pages about just how complicated it was to make this happen. All the logistics and research and development involved, it was this huge undertaking. And at some point, they mentioned this company called Kerry. They called it McDonald's Worldwide Supplier of Coatings. And I was like, that's a thing? What's so interesting about coating? I know, it's what, like flour and eggs? I mean, maybe some breadcrumbs? Like, how is it that McDonald's needs to outsource that and outsource it to one company all over the world? And I looked into it. And it turns out this business is way more complicated than I thought. So it turns out that Kerry isn't just a coding company that sells to McDonald's. It seems to make everything for everyone. And it tries to figure out what the next big food things are going to be. Today on Proof from America's Test Kitchen, a food company that knows what you're going to eat next summer. A company that claims to feed over one billion people, and it has its eyes on doubling that. I'm Kevin Pang. Stick around. Hey, Proof listeners, it's Kevin Pang here. You know I love to nerd out on food. 
So I was ecstatic when TJ Robinson, AKA the olive oil hunter, gave me tips during a taste testing of olive oil. He taught me how to tell the difference between a fresh olive oil from one that's not. The few things you should taste for when you're tasting olive oil to know if it's really good is A, it should smell and taste fruity and fresh. B, it should be bitter because it tells you it's from early harvest fruit. And three, you should feel a peppery pinch in your throat. That tells you it's fresh. Wow, TJ, this is really spectacular. I'm realizing now that a lot of olive oils that I've tasted in the past have been pretty flat and neutral and one note. And here, I'm definitely getting the bitterness. I'm getting that pepperiness. There is something very vegetal and clean about the aroma. Absolutely. The fresher, the better. Race to the U.S. by jet. Every fresh-pressed olive oil bottle is rushed to your door from artisanal farms all over the world. You too can get a taste through a special offer for proof listeners by visiting getfresh92.com. Just pay a dollar for shipping and you'll get a $39 bottle of rare, fresh-pressed, extra virgin olive oil. Get yours today at getfresh92.com. That's getfresh92.com. The world of food is vast. That's exactly why Augusta Scoffier's School of Culinary Arts blends classic culinary methods with a sound business foundation. Escoffier helps prepare students for whatever path they choose. Whether it's at their campuses in Boulder, Colorado, Austin, Texas, or getting instructions online from the convenience of your own kitchen, there's a place for you to create a career that truly caters to who you are. For more information, visit escoffier.edu. That's E-S-C-O-F-F-I-E-R dot E-D-U. Reporter John Ringer brings us today's story. In the 70s, a bunch of farmers formed the Cary Cooperative. Cary have evolved from, you know, being essentially a group of dairy cooperatives where they were just milk producers, but uh, now moved into much higher value added areas of the, of the food industry, which is adding the taste, essentially, to many of the food products that we, uh, we consume. That's David Hughes. He's Emeritus Professor of Food Marketing at Imperial College London. He even gave himself a cool nickname. Professionally, I go out as Dr. Food. In 1982, Kerry diversified into the meat business by acquiring two major pork producers in Ireland. In 1994, they bought the U.S.-based DCA Food Industries, which specialized in coatings, baking, and fruit ingredients. After that, they expanded to Southeast Asia by acquiring SDF Foods in Malaysia. They created this huge ecosystem of food scientists and engineers all around the world. Kerry was really fortunate because the food industry was becoming more and more scientific, more industrialized, and they needed new ingredients, more ingredients. And Kerry was right there at the outset, ready to take advantage of it. So being able to source ingredients and uh, very specific ingredients from right around the world, that was like step one. But they moved on to uh, actually owning intellectual property, you know, patents that are associated with great taste. Great taste, but also lots of other things. Like, Kerry has a patent on how to use celery juice to cure meat. Usually, to cure meat, you need to use chemicals called nitrates to kill off the bacteria. But nowadays, a lot of customers don't want to eat nitrates. They've heard they're bad for you. They want to eat healthier. And that means a lot of supermarkets won't stock your products if they contain nitrates. So, Kerry saw this coming, 
and they put a lot of R&D into this celery juice thing, and they took out a patent on it. Now, if you're a company that wants to sell your bacon at, say, Whole Foods, this might be one of the reasons why you want to work with Kerry. Companies like McDonald's or Frito-Lay or Oscar Mayer all have their own R&D departments, their own chefs and labs and food scientists, but they don't generally develop their own ingredients. It's like how Dell makes computers, but they buy their processors from Intel. Think of it this way. If Kerry develops an ingredient, they can sell it to hundreds of companies who can each put it in their own different products. But if McDonald's invents a new ingredient, they only have one customer, themselves. Right. And to sell all that shiny new stuff, Kerry has to convince food companies that their current ingredients aren't good enough. Right. And that's how Kerry ends up with a guy like John Namey. I'm vice president of customer innovation for Kerry. John's job, in a nutshell, is to convince food brands that he, and therefore Kerry, can see into the future. The more companies he can convince that stuff like sugar-free, keto-friendly cookie bites are the future, the more hydrolyzed collagen Kerry can sell them. When he talks, John throws the whole kitchen sink at you, and a lot of jargon. He wants you to know that he has the sixth sense. He talks about how he can literally feel a new food trend about to shake the whole world. What I like to do is I always talk about food and non-food trimmers. Those non-industrialized products that you see, not only in the perfumeries, but uh, small supermarkets. You see these on the street, in night markets, all around the world. Tremors. Wow. Like he can literally feel the vibrations caused by a new food trend? Yes. And John can go to some pretty absurd lengths to show just how ahead of the curve he is. You know that line of Ben and Jerry's ice cream with the big core of fudge or caramel running down the middle? John says that was his idea. And you know what inspired him? A scented candle. He was in Paris, and he went into a Joe Malone candle store, and... And you get to choose that core that goes up the center of the candle to create your own. So how can you deconstruct that into ice cream and have cores into ice cream that makes it exciting so you have that center of indulgence, that crispy, that crunchy, that chewy, gooey core to go with that ice cream? Mmm, center of indulgence. That's pretty wild. Like, I guess scented candles were really in at the time or something? Right. And John saw a food trend and figured out how to turn it into a product that Carrie could sell to huge food brands. People ask my wife, what does John do? She says, well, I've met Ben and Jerry before, and he's worked with them for, you know, since 95. I gotta say, when he talks about center of indulgence— He's not really thinking of food the way you and I do. Yeah, and that's before he says the word craveability. I like to talk about renovation. So renovating products and modernizing them through a consumer lens, today's consumer lens. Always looking at lower sodium, lower fat, better for you, but still has that indulgence to it, that craveability factor. So... I always work and collaborate and innovate with customers through a consumer lens, but keeping them ahead and on trend. I'm still not entirely sure what it means to innovate through a lens, but when he talks about modernizing and renovating products, that basically just means how can we revamp and sell more of this thing we already make to more customers and more clients? 
It could be peanut butter and work with them on great tasting peanut butter snacks that disrupt that whole aisle where you're bringing snacking into the peanut butter aisle or taking products out of ice cream into frozen snacks. There's so many areas where these companies can grow and get into the white space, and that happens on a daily basis. The thing is, Kerry can't get away with just having John. So much of what he does, of what Kerry does, is powered by data. Enter Salmia Nair. I lead the insights and consumer research function for Kerry globally. Most companies outsource their market research teams, but Kerry has much of theirs in-house, and Salmia is in charge. Salmia is a classic consultant. She and her teammates gather all sorts of data they can keep for themselves or sell on to clients. Big brands will come to Samya and essentially say, hey, what should be on our menu two years from now? When we are involved, they are typically at the stage where they are ready to ask a question they don't have the answer to. So it might be, hey, we want to launch you know, new lines and line extensions and we don't know what flavors to launch. Or we don't know what kinds of products really pique our customers' curiosity. Or it might be aspects such as, um, which is my favorite, is when they approach us with really blue sky, right? We don't know what to do for the next three years, five years, but we want to have a very healthy and sustainable pipeline of products. If you're a giant company like Frito-Lay, it takes a long time to get a product to market. You have to design the packaging, buy the ad time, retool your factories, get stores on board with stocking it, and you have to put in orders for raw ingredients, which might come from other suppliers that have to make all sorts of adjustments too. So, you need to be thinking about new product lines really far in advance. It's Samia's job to say, here are the flavors of Lay's you should be making for fall-winter 2023. Korean barbecue, hot honey, chicken and sage stuffing. So how does she do that? Well, I sort of pictured there would be all sorts of taste testing going on, and that's definitely happening, but the taste tests are way less important than I thought they'd be. Samia says Carrie uses quote-unquote ethnographic techniques. They're watching people, observing them. Sometimes we learn more with the way you're sitting or holding a bag of chips or, you know, the way you're kind of biting into a chip that tells us a lot more sometimes, so there's a lot more observation that comes in play. Okay, but how does observing the way we bite into a chip Tell us about the flavors we'll want next year. Combined with this ethnographic stuff, there are, of course, supercomputers. We have our own proprietary AI tool that tries to, we work it in conjunction with IBM's kind of platform of, you know, scraping algorithms and trying to understand themes in the social space. We're scraping people's open opinions, pure consumer information, because that's something that they're doing out of their own volition. Basically, they have a computer looking at zillions of social media posts about food and trying to detect patterns. Sometimes they look at influencers trying to see what tastemakers are eating and posting about. Other times they screen out posts from influencers and just look at what ordinary people are doing. Supposedly, they aren't just looking at what's being posted and saying, aha, this stuff is popular. Somnia says they're actually using these trends to create a forecast of what's coming next. And all of that comes out in things like their taste chart, It's this report they put out every year where they ID what they say are the hot, up-and-coming flavors. So I'm looking at this year's chart, and there's the dairy-slash-hot beverage category. And it has the usual suspects, chocolate, caramel, pumpkin spice. But then there's this bit that says emerging, and it's lavender, 
basil, sage, in a latte? Well, yeah, and that's what Samia says their data is showing. Savory flavors have made like 23% of an impact over just the last five years alone. So we know that, you know, people's tastes have been evolving over the years. You have those sea salt notes and relatively less sweet notes in a category that is largely typically driven by sweeter flavors and dessert type flavors. I'd say at least like a fifth of a flavor over the last five years have become a lot more focused on those, you know, botanical and savory notes. Sure enough, I was at my favorite coffee place just the other day. And what was new on the menu? A lavender latte. So, did you taste a lavender latte? I know that I should have tried one, you know, for science. But here's the thing. I hate things that taste like lavender. Like, hate them. So, it was not for me. I couldn't bring myself to try it. But, that doesn't mean other people won't like it. And it doesn't mean Salmi's wrong. So, lavender lovers, come and get some. And I'm assuming, coincidentally... Kerry has its own patented flavors and technologies that you can buy from them to make those particular flavors? Yeah, exactly. It's not like this is peer-reviewed scientific research. There's nothing stopping Kerry from steering their clients towards flavors and products they're really good at making or that are really profitable. So once they come up with the idea for the new product, how do they actually make it? Let's go back to the supermarket. And that's where we'll go after this break. You deserve a kitchen that works for you. Kohler sinks come in varying depths and basins so that you get your perfect fit. Their workstation sinks provide accessories to support all of your washing, rinsing, and storage needs. All of Kohler sinks and faucets are designed to make your kitchen look its best while still getting your cooking goals accomplished. And what a relief that is, especially during the holidays. Visit Kohler.com to learn more. Hey, Proof listeners, Kevin Pang here. I'm on the record as a mango lover. There's nothing better than a juicy, ripe, perfectly naturally sweet mango. But it has me wondering, if you're at the store, how can you tell a mango is juicy, ripe, and ready to eat? Well, lucky for me, my colleague Sasha Coleman, a test cook at America's Test Kitchen, knows just the technique when it comes to spotting a ripe mango. Hey, Sasha. Hey, Kevin. So I've seen a lot of mango varieties at the store, and they come in many different colors. So I feel like judging the ripeness by how red or yellow the mangoes are. And that doesn't really work. So tell me, how do you know when mangoes are ripe? There are a lot of different mango varieties available year-round. There's Tommy Atkins, there's Honey, there's Kent, you name it. So don't judge a mango by its color. What I like to do is pick one up and squeeze it gently. If there's a little gift to the mango, it's likely right. Oh, that's interesting. So pick it up, use your hands, give it a gentle squeeze. It shouldn't be too firm or too mushy. If there's just a little bit of a give, that's how I can tell it's ripe. Exactly. Well, how about that? Go to mango.org slash proof for tantalizing mango recipes and to learn more about mangoes. And now, just as promised, the supermarket. I mean, I'd eat that. So at the supermarket, they had this vegan burger stand that just opened. Well, how was it? Pretty good, actually. Now, like I say, there's this whole industry that does this, so I can't say for sure that anything in this particular burger was made by Kerry. But I do know that Kerry makes vegan cheese slices, it makes vegan burger patties, and it makes a vegan bun. Not just any bun, though. 
One that gives you a perfectly shaped bite, like out of a TV commercial. They even have a bun guy. A bun guy. Richie Piggott. Well, technically, he's the enzymes guy. We'll get to why enzymes are important in a bit. But what you need to know is that Kerry sells a lot of enzymes to the baking sector. And one time a client asked him to solve what was, to them, a pretty big problem. People were going to the client's fast food joints, getting a burger, unwrapping it, and... The first thing they see is the top of the hamburger bun. And um, what has been happening is that in lots of cases, that hamburger bun looks as if someone has just sat on it. It's flat, it's wrinkled looking. Oh, the horror. And this customer wanted to have the consumer experience, uh, you know, when they open the paper, the first thing they see is the top of the bun, to see a nice round dome as if the bun has just come straight out of the oven. The thing is, I think Richie is like most engineers. He just loves tackling a tough technical problem. He's not trying to sell you on the idea your burger bun sucks. He just loves the opportunity to make it better. And it's not just the looks that Richie is trying to perfect. You don't want them to be soggy. You don't want them to tear when you bite into them. You want to leave that perfect bite mark. That's where enzymes come in. It's a biological catalyst. A catalyst is something that will change one product into another product. They are the compounds that when a human, for example, has a meal, they will digest and and you're using, your body is using enzymes to convert the food that you've taken into energy compounds like glucose and, and sucrose and fructose that are incorporated into the bloodstream to keep your body alive. Baking is a mixture of chemistry and biology. It's about developing proteins and getting yeast to multiply and grow. So it makes sense that enzymes would affect those processes. One enzyme could help a dough stay strong without getting too tough or dry. Another could stop the dough from getting too soggy when it's exposed to moisture. Kerry puts tons of R&D into finding enzymes that do very specific things, things no one else's enzymes can do. And then they mass-produce them in a gigantic biology experiment. They're grown in a very, very specific way in very, very large uh, vats, very, very large containers that can be three or four stories high, uh, 50,000 gallon, 100,000 gallon containing uh, media. And basically these are very, very large tanks that have liquid medium. And by medium, I mean essentially food for that organism, that particular organism, let's say it's a a bacteria. So you have a specific bacteria that produces a specific enzyme And what's crazy is that Richie's team is out there in the wild looking for new bacteria, new yeast that will produce new enzymes. Wait a minute. So you're telling me Kerry is discovering whole new life forms and breeding them into 100,000 gallon vats, all in pursuit of creating a better bun? Yeah. See, I mean, this is a crazy industry. Because of this enzyme magic, Richie's team can basically turn a burger bun into an insulated blanket that stays hot for a long, long time. But perfecting this technique also took a long, long time. This particular project took certainly well over a year to do. We had to work very, very closely with the bakers in terms of their processing, in terms of the flour they used, and which enzymes are used to deliver the resilience, which enzymes we use to maintain moisture management during the baking process so that the heat retention was maximized. All of that before you get to the meat of the matter, or in this case, the plant-based protein. Alison Rabschnuck is building Carrie's plant-based business in North America. She used to work for a nonprofit that promoted meat-free eating, 
But through her work at Carrie, she became convinced that she could do more to help that cause by working to make veggie burgers taste better. I'm sure you've probably had a plant-based burger or even a a plant-based milk product where there's been a bit of an aftertaste. And that aftertaste could be described in a lot of different ways. It could be cardboardy, it could be beany, it could be earthy. So there are all sorts of different ways we describe. Barnyardy is another, another of my favorite words to describe an off note. Yeah, sadly, a lot of veggie burgers used to taste pretty funky. And soy protein doesn't really taste like beef. Well, it can if Carrie's involved. They have this whole line called Taste Sense, TM, all one word. They describe it as a flavor modulation platform. Basically, Carrie has become an expert in making foods taste less bad. What masking is meant to do is to remove those off notes so that you're ending up with a very neutral protein uh, that you can then build upon with the different flavor combinations. So is it a grilled chicken, fried chicken, chicken bouillon, et cetera? And then we can add our smoke and grill flavors and keep going from there. And going from there gets pretty complicated. So rather than just telling us they want to create a beef burger, we want to know exactly what kind of notes are you looking for? Are you looking for a product that's going to exactly mimic a real beef burger? Are you looking for those metallic bloody notes? Are you looking for grill notes? Is it a sirloin beef? Is it a roast beef? So then somewhere at Cary, they start rifling through the kitchen cabinet looking for the metallic bloody note flavoring? I mean, actually, kind of. Again, this is what gets you ahead in this business. The more flavors Carrie has in its portfolio, the more customers it can reach. Luckily, it's technically all natural. What our, our flavor team does is using you know, real cooking methods. Basically, their goal is to try to replicate these real flavors, real meat flavors, but using natural ingredients. You know, and, and all the all these flavors that I'm talking about are labeled in an ingredient deck as natural flavors. But ultimately, what we're doing is really replicating them, really down to the molecular level. So those natural flavors on the ingredient list, I don't know. I mean, when you get to the stage where you're replicating flavors down to the molecular level, I'm not sure the word natural really applies. Right. But that's just it. Carrie is super big into creating quote-unquote clean labels. They want to make products so close to reality that they can call them natural on the label. Okay, so let's make this a cheeseburger. What sort of food conjuring is Carrie using to make vegan American cheese? Kevin, I think you mean the plant-based vegan slice. And the scientist behind it was Joan Tobin, a cheese nerd. My undergrad was um, a food science degree and continued then the love of science and of of food to go on and do a PhD in food chemistry, which was actually on um, cheese. A cheese PhD, Dr. Cheese. Yeah. She worked on stuff like getting cheese strings to work with Irish milk, which I didn't think would be an issue, but apparently it was, and she's very proud of solving it. And she's who Carrie went to when they had to pull off a super high-stakes product, taking that iconic McDonald's slice of American cheese and making it vegan. Making any kind of cheese vegan is pretty challenging. And with McDonald's, you know exactly what the original slice tastes like. So anything different will be, well, unacceptable. You know, you want the slice in taste and texture to be the same. You want that unique flavor and taste and 
we call it functional technology, but I mean, what we mean by that is that it, it gives you the melt and that whole experience in the bun that is iconic with the cheese slice. But as you said, it's very different. So yes, we have the advantage that we have the both the technology and the expertise in making the standard, the American, the cheese slice. So the brief came in, can we do the same? Can we make a vegan slice that will rival, that will be as good, that will deliver on all those same attributes, taste, texture, melt, contribution to that overall experience in the burger build? Um, and how do you go about that? So that's what has been keeping us very, very busy for the last couple of years. On the texture side, the solution was coconut oil. It stays solid at room temperature and then leaves a very rich mouthfeel when it melts. The other big issue is taste, of course. Carrie wouldn't tell me precisely how they solved that problem, but they say the big hurdle was that non-dairy dairy flavors can taste weird and acidic if you use too much of them. Over a year to produce a bun, another two years for the slice. What took so long? I mean, I've seen vegan cheese slices before. Ah, uh, yeah, but those are made in a giant block and then cut into slices. That's not how a McDonald's slice is made. Believe it or not, each one of those slices is molded individually. They behave totally differently, and no one had tried that molding or casting method with vegan cheese. So Joan puts her PhD to work and designs a prototype. And how it works is that if you can imagine like almost a cheese sauce, and uh, so you've you've cooked your cheese sauce and you you pour it almost like on a, a moving belt or a move a bed, so you form a really thin sheet. And as it's poured onto that bed, it's cooled immediately. So it sets up and it solidifies into your sheet and it's just casted or it's cut into ribbons and it's stacked to give you your required dimensions. Boom. Nailed it. Fabulous. We were thrilled. Packed product. Successful trial. Only problem was the following week, we went to look at the samples and all of the slices had coalesced, had stuck back together. So Joan goes back to the drawing board. So the second phase at the plant, really successful. Again, delighted with ourselves and really felt we're, we're making huge progress here. The only problem was we spent the next six months <laughs> trying to replicate it. And that is, I suppose, where we had huge support from in-house uh, engineering because it just, uh, we could not get that product to scale. But sometimes it all pays off. I think I was getting ready to send the email to say, yeah, no, not successful today. And we just had, you know, someone change something small in steam pressure or whatever it was at the time. And just like that, a vegan slice for your McDonald's burger. But Joan had to check it out for herself. It wasn't until we saw it and I saw my plant on the side of the McDonald's and actually went in to eat it, uh, with, with, uh, went into the McDo a McDonald's restaurant to eat it that just said, okay, Eureka, it's really here, you know. And to stop yourself as well as that from pulling it apart, make sure you're happy, happy with it and eat it like everyone else eats it. But that's the thing I've learned from Carrie, Kevin. We don't get amazing, weird, delicious, healthy, vegan, nutritious, zany out there foods from people who eat like everyone else. We get it from people who eat like Joan. Folks like Samya, who use AI to figure out tomorrow's hit flavors. Nerds who devote their whole lives to cheese or burger buns or plant protein. Folks like John Namie, who can go into a candle shop and come out with a new idea for ice cream. John, you're almost making me want to get lost in the supermarket with you. 
Oh, you should definitely come along next time. I'm keeping my eye out for this frozen pizza John Namie told me about. He wants to use liquid smoke to make it taste like it came from a wood-fired oven. Hmm, you know, I actually had pizza for lunch. Okay, what about growing fungus in a giant vat and then taking the protein and forming it into something that kind of looks like chicken? Um... Oh, and there's that celery juice bacon. Let's just stick to the veggie burger, what do you say? Thanks to John Ringer for bringing us today's story. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Kevin Pang, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters. I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm executive producer Caitlin Kelleher. I'm supervising producer Caroline Rickert. I'm Terrence Johnson, and I'm the associate producer. I'm Alex Kern Cartarelli, and I'm also an associate producer. I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton, Chester Guazda, and Anya Gzeshik of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composer theme music. Additional music by Cal Forster and Jordan Pearson. And Margolis. Is our director of post-production, and our director of production is... Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by... Angela Yang. Special thanks to Catherine Cleary from the Irish Times and Kusha Mitra from Business Today, whose past reporting helped inform this episode. And thanks also to Megan Poinsky from Food Dive for her help in making sense of this industry. Jack Bishop is the Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen, and David Nussbaum is America's Test Kitchen's CEO. Thanks to our sponsors Kohler, the National Mango Board, Augusta Scoffier School of Culinary Arts, Fresh Pressed Olive Oil, and the Naked Lunch Podcast. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen.